Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're local, come hang with us one Sunday morning. Our service is at 1030. You can learn more about the church by visiting our website, calvary316.com. Again, that's Calvary. 316.com. Wherever you happen to be or however you're listening, whether you're listening on one of our incredible radio partners or you've uh, subscribed to our podcast every episode of the Outlaw Radio Show, once it goes to air on radio, we turn around and we post it on our podcast. So wherever you're listening, however you're listening, I do hope you stay with me over the next hour as we seek to deconstruct the negative perception the world has of Christians by boldly discussing relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. If you listen to the Outlaw Radio Show for any length of time, uh, there's a lot of variety to the show, from interviews to social topics to uh, thoughts that I have on passages of Scripture. Uh, I'm currently at Calvary 316 teaching through the book of Leviticus, and it's rocking my world. Incredible. I mean, really the mountaintop. The title of our series is The Precedent for Grace. I've been on this incredible grace kick for years now and thought, man, Leviticus. If I can find grace in Leviticus, it's everywhere. I mean, close the book. It's a done deal. And it's true. Leviticus is not only super, super, super relevant as it theologically establishes the precedent for grace, but the book's incredibly practical. Not something you often think of Leviticus, but it's practical in the way that it explains all the many ways that God's grace changes everything, every part of our life. The truth is the presence of God in the midst of our lives should yield a natural effect on the way we live, the way we act, the way we interact with the world around us. Now, I got to chapter 19 of the book of Leviticus, and I was, I was studying a little bit of backstory. I was working my way, my way through this interesting text, and just constantly as I'm, as I'm going through, I'm just, I feel like I'm missing something. I listened to probably about 12 hours worth of commentary uh, on Leviticus 19, and it was at the very end. I got up from my desk, it was late, went and got another cup of coffee, it was burning the midnight oil, and it hit me. I've heard this before. Now, what I want to do with this episode is I want to work through Leviticus 19, verse by verse. But as we go through this passage, and I think this is so neat, uh, so radical, I'm dedicating a whole episode to this, but I'm going to try to illustrate something about this text that's just below the surface that I think is an absolute game changer. So, so as we're listening, as I work through this passage expositionally, verse by verse, I want to see if you can kind of pick up on it, the listener, before we get to the end. And if you can't, no big deal, because at the end of the show, I'm going to kind of wrap it all up, tie it all together, and uh, and I think you're going to be uh, blown away by this. So Leviticus 19, verse 1, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Following a, a lengthy set of, of dietary restrictions, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, records God's first use of this refrain, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And now as chapter 19 starts, we again find God exhorting his people to what? To be holy. And don't overlook the significance of this. One of the core traps that people fall into when studying a, a chapter like Leviticus 19, or, or really the book of Leviticus altogether, is to see these directives as a list of commands that we need to do, as opposed to being a description of what God intended his people to be. Understand, God isn't commanding his people to do anything. Instead, through Leviticus, God is describing what their lives as his people should look like in light of their relationship, a relationship, mind you, established on his grace. They were in Egypt in bondage, in slavery. They could do nothing about it. And what did God do? God raised up a deliverer. God freed them. God liberated them. Then God led them to Mount Sinai, and he's establishing them as his people, as this new holy nation. 
They did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it, but God, God worked on their behalf. So God here, he's describing, and this is important, what their lives as his people should look like in light of their relationship with God established on his grace. The first characteristic, according to the first three verses of Leviticus 19, of a child of God living in light of his grace is that you'll revere your father and mother. The idea behind this word revere spoke of an attitude that a person who'd experienced God's grace was to have towards their mom and dad. The Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians 6, verses 2 and 3, that we're to honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Up front, I know for many of you listening, the relationship that you likely have with your parents is at a minimum complicated. (laughs) For others of you, it might actually be downright toxic, that you might have been deeply wounded and hurt by your mom and dad. Understand this verse doesn't mean you have to obey your parents. (laughs) But what it does say is that simply because they gave you life, if, if nothing else, a measure of reverence is warranted, is appropriate. In this verse, God also says, a person experiencing his grace will keep his Sabbaths. Beginning in creation, God established the precedent of the Sabbath when following six days of work, he rested on the seventh. God's work was completed. God and Adam, the man that he had made into his image, were free to enjoy life as it had always been meant to enjoy. And yet, as the story unfolds, following man's sin in the garden on the seventh day, the holy day, God's Sabbath rest ended as he had to immediately go back to work in order to bring forth his plan of redemption. While there is no doubt the creator knew the emotional and physical importance of human beings resting every seventh day. It's something that that God actually expounds upon uh, more and more details later on in Leviticus. It, It was part of his design always for man to rest on a seventh day. But the idea here behind man taking a day to cease from his work and rest, possessed an even deeper religious purpose. Jesus would say in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In another passage, Jesus will actually refer to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Keeping this day of rest was man's way of acknowledging the reality there was nothing he could do to restore God's Sabbath, that relationship that they had and had enjoyed, the life that God meant for man to enjoy on the seventh day, well, it could only be restored how? Through God's work apart from man's involvement. So wait a second, Zach, are are you saying I have to keep the Sabbath? Well, you know, such a question actually misses the point entirely. You know, God's grace doesn't mandate you do anything. It doesn't mandate you keep the Sabbath day. Instead, it's an understanding of God's grace that motivates you to take a Sabbath. Think think of it like this way. The should I transitions in grace to the why wouldn't I? You know, in our fast-paced world, there's a practical benefit to setting aside one day in seven to rest physically and recharge emotionally. And yet the greatest benefit of a Sabbath is is that it helps a person adjust their eyes from the temporal onto the eternal. It's why the Jews began the Sabbath at the synagogue, the Sabbat. One day a week, all work ceased, routines stopped, the community gathered in worship, and then they spent the rest of the day with their families, (laughs) watching football. Well, the traditional Sabbath ended following the resurrection of Jesus. And why was this? Well, God, God's, he was his final rest, it was, it was restored. You know, the early church leaders still recognized the importance of setting aside one day a week to recenter spiritually, worship corporately, and reflect on the incredible goodness of God. We just do that on Sunday. Like, I, I can't emphasize enough the spiritual benefits that will be yielded in your life if you simply prioritize coming to church with your family once a week on Sunday morning.
Leviticus 19, verse 4, continuing, Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molden gods. I am the Lord your God. It's worth noting God is referring here to two different types of idols, those we adopt that already exist, and those we actually mold or make for ourselves. If you don't believe this is still a relevant admonition, in 1 John 5, verse 21, and in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, New Testament believers are commanded to, quote, keep yourselves from idols, to flee idolatry. In his book on this subject matter, titled Counterfeit Gods, pastor and author Timothy Keller, he defines idolatry as, quote, anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. He then adds, idolatry then is not just a failure to obey God, it is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. In layman's terms, an idol is anything or anyone you give a preeminent position in your life to over Jesus. Now, what's intriguing about this command to avoid idolatry is that it's being given by God to whom? His chosen people. I mean, consider that. All that God had done at this point to reveal himself to this, this ragtag group of slaves he's making into a nation, from the plagues of Egypt to the parting of the Red Sea to man, I mean, unbelievable stuff. You know, how is it that, that a God-fearing believer could possibly turn to idol worship? You know, it's not an accident that this particular mandate immediately follows God's exhortation to keep a Sabbath. You see, one intends to safeguard you from the other. Like, here's the truth. God exists to save people from hell. I mean, I know that's a very simplified definition, but, but it's true. Meaning, if your perspective remains on the eternal, right, what the Sabbath is supposed to help you with, then Jesus is the only God that makes any rational sense. I mean, how is money going to help you when you're dead? How is fame going to help you when you're dead? How are any of these things going to help you when you're dead? The only thing that would help you is Jesus. So he's the only God that makes rational sense when you keep your perspective on the eternal. And yet, if your life gets wrapped up in temporal worldly things, well, counterfeit gods or idols are quick to emerge. Like, for example, if poor finances, debt, the instability that results becomes the most pressing issue in your life. We'll call it hell. How quickly a job or a career will become your idol. If, if health or body issues dominate, and man, that is such a big thing in our culture. If insecurities from your body dominate your life, that's your hell. You know, it's not a surprise that you'll, you'll grow consumed with a diet gym or lifestyle that you'll worship there every morning in front of your Peloton. Like if, you, if, if loneliness is your hell, and I know for a lot of people, it's loneliness. What results then is, is a relationship will end up taking a preeminent position in your life. Friend, keep in mind the key to idolatry is to always keep your perspective on the eternal matters and not the temporary ones. When we come back, we're going to get to verse 5. Uh, but before we do, one of our hearts here at the Outlaw Radio Show is to hear, to connect with you, the listening audience. If you have any questions, comments, opinions, our email address is info at outlawradio.org. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlaw. And if you're into Twitter, our handle is at radio underscore outlaw. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the most important visions of the Outlaw Radio Show is our desire to challenge you to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on your own. The sad reality is many Christians fail to reflect Christ because they don't know what they believe or why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to the Outlaw Radio Show tackling tough topics you might not hear at church, it is our desire to equip, inspire, and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this important process, we want you to check out blueletterbible.org. It would be an understatement to say that this website will transform the way you study the Bible. In fact, it will revolutionize it. Aside from their treasure trove of free online commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it super simple to dive into the original language behind a text. 
So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture and in the process, learn and grow, we encourage you to check out blueletterbible.org today. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm teaching uh, verse by verse here through Leviticus 19. And as I'm doing, I'm going to kind of uh, give you guys little bits of, of, of clues, little crumbs that you can follow along, seeing if you can pick up on what makes this chapter so radical. 12 hours worth of studying, diving deep, and it dawned on me, wait a second, I've heard this before. Well, let, let's just get right back to the text. Leviticus 19, verse 5. And if you, the Lord speaking to Moses to articulate these things to the children of Israel. If you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it and on the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it's eaten at all on the third day, it's an abomination. It's bad. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, anyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. This is basically a condensed version of similar stipulations that are recorded in Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 21. So we'll just move right on to verse 9. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord. Fundamentally, any person who's experienced God's grace should naturally possess a heart of love and compassion for those that are less fortunate. It's, that's natural. Within Israel, the welfare system was designed so that the poor and the stranger were able to glean in a field or a vineyard after the harvest. Following the shears, it was legal and permissible for a person to walk behind and collect necessary provisions from whatever was left over. You know, unlike our society, the poor, well, they were required to work if they wanted to eat. There were no free handouts. You had to glean in the fields. Now, connected with this provision, God goes on the record explaining what the attitude should be of the haves towards the have-nots. If you fully understood and recognized the entire increase of that year's harvest solely existed because of the grace of God, well, it would only be natural that you'd, well, cut corners, leaving sections of the field for the poor, as well as only taking one pass through the vineyard, leaving an ample supply of grapes left over. The idea is you weren't stingy with what God had given. It was all the Lord's anyway. My friend, I hope you know there is a direct connection between one's faith in God's provisions and understanding of his grace and that person's charity. It's simply a truth that greater faith always leads to greater generosity. In fact, Jesus said, where a man's treasure lies, there his heart will lie also. You know, it's really not how much of your money you choose to give, but how much of God's money you keep for yourself. While grace doesn't demand that you give anything, and that's true, grace should motivate you to be generous. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul writes, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful or, or literally a hilarious giver. Verse 11 of Leviticus 19, You shall not steal or take something by force, nor deal falsely or, or feign obedience, deceive. Nor shall you lie to one another or communicate a deliberate falsehood. And you shall not swear by my name falsely or, or base an oath on God's name and then fail to follow through. Nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, Jesus said, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, and shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. In the Hebrew, this word profane that we find in this passage, it doesn't, doesn't mean to take the Lord's name in vain as we tend to view it. More broadly, the word means to make common that which isn't. The idea being articulated in light of God's grace is that our desire should be to live a life that isn't common or like everyone else, but that we're to live a life in such a way that the name of God is magnified. 
And Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said of his disciples, you are the light of the world, so let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. In Acts 10, God says to Peter that what he's cleansed, he should not call common. Verse 13, you should not cheat your neighbor or intentionally defraud him, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Basically, if someone's worked for you with the expectation of a certain wage, it's simply inconsistent with the grace that you've received from God for you to then withhold a man's pay. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or, or view them as being insignificant or of little value, nor should you put a stumbling block before the blind or, or act in such a way that would cause them unnecessary harm. Don't curse the deaf or, or put a stumbling block before the, for the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Again, knowing that apart from God's goodness, we could just as easily find ourselves in such a terrible physical condition, our heart, as the people of God towards those less fortunate, the handicap, should be that of love and compassion, tenderheartedness. You know, if Jesus demonstrated anything in his earthly ministry, his heart towards the physically afflicted, oh man, wasn't it evident? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 5, we're told that Jesus came that the blind might see and the lame walk, that lepers might be cleansed and the deaf hear, that the dead raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Leviticus 19, verse 15, continuing our way through this chapter, you shall do no injustice in judgment. Basically, you should judge fairly. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. And righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. When it comes to your decision-making, never forget this. God's grace places all men onto an equal footing. As such, it's unjust to show partiality towards the poor simply because they're poor, and it's unjust to honor the mighty just because, well, they might be influential. To this point, in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus would say that when you give a dinner, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Verse 16, you shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, or one who bears tales or gossips about other people. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor or bear falsely if called to testify, I am the Lord. In my study of this chapter, Pastor John Corson, he makes this really astute observation about the effects of gossip. Uh, John, he says that three people are always hurt. One, the person you're gossiping about is hurt because you've tainted their reputation without giving them the ability to defend themselves. Two, yourself, well, you're hurt because you're now known as a gossip. And, and thirdly, gossip always hurts the person that you're gossiping to because you're poisoning their perspective about somebody else. It's been said great minds talk about ideas, good minds talk about events, but small minds talk about people. Here's a good rule of thumb. If a person gossips to you, they're likely gossiping about you as well. You know, Jesus cautions in Matthew 12, verses 34 through 37. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall, not, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. S simply put, what verse 17 is saying is that God's love should make it impossible to hate someone. Like hate is so contradictory to the nature of God. In 1 John 3, verse 15, we're told that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer 
has eternal life abiding in him. You know, when you're when you're harmed, God says that you're to go to that person and deal with it privately instead of harboring a resentment. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Taking vengeance upon another, it's dangerous because at some point, every victim has also been a perpetrator. We're all guilty. Additionally, bearing a grudge only infects a victim with a cancer that will destroy them. In Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39, Jesus says, you have heard it You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You know, according to God, the only possible mechanism for healing, if you're a victim, is love. Again, this passage, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the word love. It's in the active tense, implying motion, loving, actively. Instead of lashing out with vengeance or bearing a grudge, our response as the people of God, living in light of His grace, should be to demonstrate kindness and show love irregardless of how we've been treated. Again, in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 44, Jesus carries this whole concept one step further. He defines specifically how we're to love. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and and hate your enemy. So he's quoting Leviticus 19, verse 8. Jesus continues, But I say to you, in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. We're working our way through Leviticus 19, verse by verse. In the second half of today's episode, we're going to start to Pick things up with kind of a grand reveal, this undercurrent. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. You know, it's been said that the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Today, Pastor Zach is diving into the book of Leviticus. We're learning a lot of the symbolism that we see in this book points directly to Jesus and has specific application to our walk with Jesus. So don't go anywhere. Come back in just a moment. Zach's going to continue to talk us through the book of Leviticus chapter 19, right here on the Outlaw Radio Show. Here's Pastor Zach with the second half of the Outlaw Radio Show in Leviticus chapter 19. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. Let's dive right back into our travels through Leviticus 19, verse by verse. Verse 19, God continues, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. In order to understand what God is saying in this verse, it's an interesting verse, Keep in mind the state of context. It begins, verse 19 begins, you shall keep my statutes. It would seem then the reference of livestock breeding with another kind or sowing your field with mixed seed or mixing linen and wool in a garment was God's way of illustrating for us a larger principle central to keeping his statutes. In order to live such a life that upholds his statutes, you know, it's just the truth that we have to avoid the mixture of that which undermines purity. My friend, God's grace is, is not the starting point by which we progress into greater realities. Grace is the only point. If your motivation for keeping his statutes is anything but God's grace and grace alone, if you adhere to a, a gospel perversion of grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things, failure will always result. Keep things pure. You know, Jesus would caution as well to the dangers of compromise. In Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16, Paul says, Not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, adding, For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? This, this line, 
nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. It's, it's a profound line. I wish I had more time to unpack it. But it's profound when you consider that linen was the garment of the priests, while wool was worn by the worker. It, like In a way, God is illustrating a prohibition against the mixing of righteous linen and our works, his righteousness and his work. Ah, it's a cool, cool idea. Verse 20, whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this there shall be a scourging, but they shall not be put to death, which according to the next chapter was the standard penalty for adultery, mainly because the text says she was not free. And he, this guilty party, shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meaning, a ram of the trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering. Clearly he's committed a trespass before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. This is an interesting story, uh, and I'm going to work through it very quickly. The situation begins here with a man lying carnally with a woman. While the English appears to describe adultery motivated by carnal desires, lying carnally, the the word lies here, it's actually the same word that God uses in his prohibition of homosexuality in the previous chapter. With that in mind, it seems the man here, this is not motivation by carnal desires, but he's actually fallen in love with this woman, and he sleeps with her hoping that they would marry. Now, there's two problems, though. First, we're told that she's a, quote, concubine who has not been redeemed or given her freedom. Now, to be fair, the word concubine would be better translated as maidservant, like she's an employee of the man. But the fact that she hasn't been redeemed or given her freedom implies that her servitude wasn't compulsory, but was required. Though her actions are reciprocal, we can gather that, his authority over her well, it complicates things. Secondly, we're told this woman was, quote, betrothed to another man. Now, in Hebrew culture, this meant she was legally married, but hadn't consummated the, the marriage relationship. Now, adultery was a death penalty, but because she's still a virgin, there's a measure of grace given in this situation. We're told on account that she's under the man's authority, there shall be a scourging. Now, This is the only place in the entire Bible this word scourging is used in the Hebrew. And it doesn't mean what you think it means. It actually means to compensate or punish. Like more than likely, because the man took advantage of his position, the punishment resulted in this woman's debt being satisfied, so she's free to do whatever she wants. Additionally, he also has to come and offer a ram as a trespass offering. Now, now what does this tell us? Well, there are moral matters that are clearly black and white. Like, for example, adultery with your neighbor's wife is one of them. We see that in Leviticus 18. When you wade into the more complicated gray issues, a betrothed woman, as Pastor Chuck always said, it's wise to err if you're going to err on the side of grace. Legally or not, Jesus would add in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, he says, you've heard that it was said of, of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 23, when you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised or unharvested. Three years it shall be unharvested to you. It shall not be eaten. In the fourth year, its fruit shall be wholly a praise to the Lord. The fifth year, you can eat of it. It may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. Now, practically, we we know there's a tangible, tangible benefit of a few years of pruning a tree before harvesting fruit. Actually, spoke to Josh, my producer, who is kind of a, an amateur arborist, to talk about this issue, and he affirmed the, the wisdom of these, these verses. Wait till the, the fifth year for the best fruit. Pertaining to grace, there's no question that God is illustrating a much larger, larger principle that Jesus builds off when he talks about what? Knowing a tree by its fruit. Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20. Spiritually mature And useful fruit, my friend, takes time to develop in a person's life. So don't be overly judgmental when someone gives their life to the Lord. It takes time. See, this highlights the importance of patience and that we shouldn't judge people prematurely. Verse 26, you shall not eat anything 
with blood, nor shall you practice divination or fortune-telling or soothsaying, observing times or astrology. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead or tattoo any marks on you, I am the Lord. Now, the context for these things were pagan customs associated with the, with the mourning of the dead or idol worship. A great example of this would be Elijah and his cook-off with the prophets of Baal, where they're cutting themselves. Verse 29, do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot. Good advice. <laughs> Lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. This word prostitute, it means to make common. And the word translated to cause her to become a harlot refers to fornication, like the idea that God's articulating is he's calling upon fathers to hold their daughters to a holy standard of modesty. Why? So that the larger societal framework doesn't fall into decadence. Verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths, reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Interesting, in the context of raising daughters in a godly way, we find the exhortation of prioritizing the Sabbath or incorporating spiritual things into the life of the family, while at the same time, keeping demonic worldly influences at bay at a distance. Verse 32, and you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. You know, in much the same way that children were to honor their parents, society was to have an esteem for its seniors and their experiences. You know, it's sad that our okay boomer culture has abandoned this ideal. You know, within the church, we should always have a great respect towards our seasoned siblings. Finishing out the chapter, let's continue. And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him or, or oppress or treat violently. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, treated as a, a native Israelite. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God's addressing the attitude the Israelites were to have towards the stranger. Uh, their experiences as foreigners in Egypt meant that they were to treat people in a different way. Never forget over and over and over again. In the New Testament, we see believers encouraged not to neglect to show hospitality towards strangers. In Matthew 25, Jesus even goes so far as to equate the way that we treat the least of these to the way that we treat him. I'm going to set this whole idea aside for a future episode. I want to talk about immigration but regarding immigration or the stranger's ability to stay in the land, though they were to be treated with love and compassion, they had to, one, reject their former identity by becoming a Hebrew, which meant circumcision. They had to, secondly, reject former religion and culture by fully assimilating into Hebrew society, and they had to obey the laws that governed the nation they were deciding to, to join. Uh, verses 35 through 37, wrapping up the chapter, you shall do no injustice in judgment and measure of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, an honest hen. Basically, business dealings were to be fair and above reproach. Uh, um, amazingly, one of Jesus's greatest outbursts was in response to whom? The money changers making a mockery of the temple. God continues, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. Were you able to pick up on some of the undercurrent? Like how Leviticus 19 is quite radical. If, if you weren't, that's okay. When we come back, we're going to tie all this together. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. Did you know beyond the unique content of the Outlaw Radio Show, Pastor Zach Adams also has an extensive teaching archive available online for free? If you love to study the Bible, we encourage you to check out c316.tv. Currently, Pastor Zach is teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John, but c316.tv also has video, audio, and sermon notes for the Gospel of Mark, the book of Acts, Ephesians, Genesis, Philemon, Jonah, Philippians, as well as an in-depth study on the Olivet Discourse and Jesus' seven letters to the churches recorded in Revelation 3 and 4. 
with over 17,000 minutes of expositional Bible teaching and more than 2,775 pages of written sermon transcripts, C316.tv is a must-visit for any serious student of the Bible. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. We just completed going verse by verse through Leviticus 19, which I think is a incredible chapter. Pretty radical, actually, right there in the middle of the law. And as we worked our way through, I wanted to try to take you on a bit of a journey to see if you could pick up, if you could hear what I heard in the text. Now, if, if you weren't able to pick up on the undercurrent, let me just kind of quickly recap for you the themes of the chapter, okay? And let me see if you can pick up on it. Leviticus 19 covers the following, being holy, honoring parents, keeping the Sabbath, idolatry, compassion towards the poor, being generous with our harvest, stealing, deceiving others, lying, swearing on God's name falsely, taking God's name in vain, playing, paying employees, kindness towards the deaf and the blind, showing no partiality in judgment, not gossiping, bearing false witness, hating your brother, loving your neighbor, not mixing those things which should remain pure, grace towards sexual sin, how to judge a tree and fruit, avoiding the occult, respecting the elderly, treating the stranger with dignity and kindness, conducting business honestly. You know, amazingly, the case can be made that the description of a holy life found here in Leviticus 19 is identical to the one established for you and I, the Christian, in the New Testament. Again and again, you find the exact same themes reemerging. In truth, I'm convinced that Leviticus 19, what I call God's sermon from the tent, the tabernacle, in actuality lays the foundation for Jesus' sermon on the mount. I mean, think about this. Chapter 19, Leviticus 19 begins, be holy. How does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? With a list of beatitudes. You know, one of the grand accusations that gets levied at the Old Testament is how it presents God as possessing such a heavy hand, an angry God. How fascinating, though, in light of this chapter, how fascinating that Jesus and the New Testament authors, in actuality, consistently take Leviticus 19 one step further. Like, who's actually heavy-handed? Think about it. In this chapter, God says, you shall love your neighbor. Jesus said, love your enemies. Oh, you shouldn't hate your brother. <laughs> Jesus says, do good to those who hate you and pray for them. You shouldn't murder. Jesus says, don't be angry. You shouldn't commit adultery. Jesus says, don't lust. Leave the corner of your field for those lacking. To the rich young ruler, what will Jesus say? He'll encourage him to sell everything he has, not just the corners, and give it to the poor. You know, in Matthew 5, verse 17, we're told that Jesus didn't come to contrast the law. <laughs> Nor did he come to like do away with the law and these mandates. Instead, Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. The problem that Jesus had, in fact, with the religious leaders wasn't that they failed to understand what the law was all about. It's that they completely missed what the law was all about. Entirely. Like the law, my friend, wasn't rules for them to obey. It was a description of the very people God intended to make them into. You know, in the context of everything we've been discussing about God taking this group of people, creating them into a separate and holy nation, it's what Leviticus is all about. It's not an accident then that the chapter closes with Genesis language. Like this word, you shall observe. You know, that's the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. In that passage, we read, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and told him to tend and keep it. That word keep, it's the same as observe. Aside from this, we have where it says, You shall observe and perform them. This word perform, it's also foundational to creation narrative. 
creation language. In Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12, one of many examples, we're told, then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and fruit, the fruit tree that yields, same word as perform in the Hebrew, yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so, and the, and the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed, the tree that yields, again, performs fruit. God saw that it was good. What do you mean, Zach? Like, what's the point of that? The idea that God is articulating, what he's communicating, what he wants you and I to understand, is that the attitudes and actions described in this passage, Leviticus 19, reiterated in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus and the New Testament authors. These attitudes, these actions, this description of holiness was only something that could be yielded by God in their lives as they tended to his word. You tend to my word and I'm going to create you as my people into something sanctified, something holy. Leviticus 19 is just a description of what we're to be, even as New Testament saints. Like what a wonderful promise it is to consider that holiness is not something that any man can manifest within himself. You can't do holiness. You must be made holy. You can't do holiness. You have to be made holy. They're not the do attitudes. They're the be attitudes, which is what God is promising his people. He would make them into what he would accomplish in them. In the same way that God brought forth vegetation from the earth, he uses the same language to describe the process in which he would make them into holy people as long as they remained rooted in his word. How does a grape become a grape? It abides in the vine. Like, have you ever walked past a vineyard and you see grapes hanging there really struggling to be a grape? No, they hang out, connected, abiding, rooted, and they're just sucking on the nutrients. They're getting fat off the nutrients. They grow because of the nutrients. They abide. Jesus says to abide in him. That's how holiness is accomplished. You become more like Christ when you hang out with Christ and he rubs off. You know, one of the grand debates that surrounds a book like Leviticus, the law, is how much of it we as New Testament Christians should be doing. T to this question, I'd simply say, well, we're to do none of it, but embody all of it. We're to do none of it, but embody all of it. Something that can only happen. Holiness. When Jesus not just saves us from our sin, not just makes us righteous before the throne room of God, but then dwells inside of us through his spirit and then begins to work out of us his grace manifesting in our lives as we're being transformed by the power of his word. My friend, grace is not the beginning of something. It ends in the revelation of someone. Leviticus 19. What a radical, radical chapter. A sermon from the tent laying the framework for the Sermon on the Mount. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. I hope you enjoyed today's, today's episode. I know it was a little different than what we typically do. If you did, I, I encourage you right off the bat to contact your local Christian radio station and just say thank you that they're carrying this type of programming in your community. The other thing I want to encourage you to do is to visit our website, which is outlawradio.org. From the site, you can easily access our podcast. Every episode of the Outlaw Radio Show is podcasted. It's available on... Uh, Apple Podcasting, as well as Google Play, uh, all the platforms. You can listen to this episode in its entirety or all previous episodes. Again, the easiest way to find the podcast, just go to outlawradio.org, and then there's a quick link up in the top right-hand corner. Let's connect. Twitter, at Radio underscore Outlaw. Info at outlawradio.org or facebook.com slash Outlaw. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show.
You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.